Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gills Talk podcast. I am your host, Kristen Smith, and today we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Lauren Brewster on. Lauren is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth and is formerly a senior research fellow at Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch. She completed her PhD through University of Hull in the UK after spending three years collecting data while stationed at the Bimini Biological Field Station in the Bahamas. Today, we are going to talk about some of her work in Bimini, as well as her bull shark work in Florida, and then a little bit about her current postdoctoral work at UMass Dartmouth. So sit back and relax, and let's enjoy our interview with Dr. Lauren Brewster. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gills Talk podcast. Today, we have one of our newest Gills Club scientists, Dr. Lauren Brewster, on. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So if anyone did not have the joy of seeing Lauren's talk back in April that she did for us through our um, Shark Tale lecture series, I wish you all would have saw it. My mouth was pretty much open the whole time with everything that you were able to tell us about your research. So for the people that are listening, maybe you'll be able to hear some of those things throughout the podcast today. I mean, you have done so much different things. You have worked with Goliath Grouper. You have worked with lemon sharks. You work with bull sharks. I mean, you get to work with such incredible an array of species. Yeah, I've been really fortunate in that regard. Um, I definitely started off as somebody that just loved sharks and that's moved into enjoying all marine predators. And then just, I really enjoyed fisheries during my undergrad. So also kind of trying to go down that route a little bit more as well. So very broad and diverse interests for sure. So you said, you know, you've always had an interest in sharks. Um, if anyone cannot tell from Lauren's accent, you are not from the United States. You were, um, you did grow up in England. So then how does someone from England get this joy of sharks? I watched a documentary when I was, I think around eight or nine years old, um, that was on sharks and crocodiles. And I was obsessed with both of them for about a week. And then being a young kid, just kind of forgot about the crocodiles and um, just carried on being fascinated by sharks and um, reading as much as I could and finding newspaper clippings and keeping a little scrapbook and things like that. So yeah, just kind of went from there really. And I think that's really funny when you say like, oh, it was like a week <laughs> and, then yeah. like, and goodbye and we went on to something else. But you know, your passion always stayed and it, and it shows, I mean, you are a postdoctoral researcher now at, at University of Massachusetts Dartmouth looking um, at, again, looking at sharks. So I would love for you to talk about that research that you're doing. Well, actually, since moving to UMass Dartmouth, I'm not doing so much shark stuff. I was doing a lot more shark stuff during my postdoc at um, University of Florida's Hub Branch Oceanographic Institute. Um, so I was doing bull shark work there and Goliath grouper work there. Um, but as I mentioned, I'm also interested in fisheries. Um, so at UMass Dartmouth, I've taken a totally different turn um, and I'm uh, looking at a, a tool to try and understand ecosystem-based fisheries man management. So like I said, really, really diverse work. For the sake of this podcast, I'm sure you're probably 
um, more interested in hearing about the Florida Atlanta University work. So yeah, I was hired for that position to work with Goliath Grouper to try and understand more about their call, calling behavior there, um, something that we call a sniferous fish. So they make different sounds um, in response to different things, whether that's divers or um, other Goliath Grouper. So it was, spent a bunch of time basically trying to understand their behavior and why they call and where they call. Um, but also had the opportunity to work on some bull shark behavior stuff in the Indian River Lagoon, which has been really cool. So I'm currently analyzing the data for that. Um, and there's, I highlighted during my Atlantic White Shark Conservancy talk, it's, there's a lot of data to get through just because of the tools that I use to, to collect that data. So remind me if I'm wrong, there's over a million data points that you have to go through. Oh, easily. <laughs> yeah, I think significantly more than that at this point. I can't even keep count. Um, so I use used accelerometers a lot in my work. It's becoming an increasingly popular tool to use for understanding the, the movement of whatever animal they're attached to. And they're really popular um, because they're relatively affordable and you can get so much data from them. And for people that aren't uh, uh, familiar with what an accelerometer is, it's basically, um, as I said, something that can help monitor your body movement. And we have them in things like our Apple Watch or our Fitbits for counting steps and being able to determine what um, activity you're doing. Um, and also in your iPhone um, there, they can be used to detect when you change your phone from portrait to landscape mode. Actually, accelerometers are around us all the time and most people just don't realize the, the use of them and how extensively they're used. So I think it's just one way that people are not realizing, like, like you said, we use accelerometers in our everyday life. We're just not aware of it. And what a cool piece of equipment that you can use for so many different things. So then when you're putting one on a bull shark, you know, it's collecting millions of data points. So then what type of data is it collecting? What are we trying to learn from putting an accelerometer on a bull shark? Are we trying to learn how fast it's swimming? Where is it going? Like, what is the goal of that? Yeah, so that's, to me, that's one of the beauties of, of using an accelerometer. And most of the time they're used alongside another type of sensor as well. So for example, for the bull shark work that I've been doing in the Indian River Lagoon, we have an accelerometer, but it's also coupled with something called a magnetometer, um, which basically allows us to sort of reconstruct by using those two sensors together we can sort of reconstruct an animal's path and it's just giving us a rough idea you know we're not saying oh it's going to be exactly at this location at this particular time but it gives us an understanding of for example how wiggly their path is or how straight their path is and I know I know that might sound like oh well why do we care but the thing is with the accelerometer data you're getting so much information and it's all of these up and down squiggly lines that can be hard to interpret. But if you put that alongside a rough path or track of an animal, for example, if you can see that they're moving fast, but they're moving in a dead straight line, then they might be swimming really fast away from something. So, or if they're doing tight turning circles and they're really active, maybe they're hunting something. So it really helps to just contextualize the, the accelerometer data and help you to interpret it. So yeah, accelerometers and magnetometers are often used together, but you can also include temperature sensors in the package um, and pressure sensors for measuring depth. 
So you can really, by combining all of these different sensors on these animal born tags, you can really build up a picture of what they're doing and sort of the conditions that they're doing it under. Um, so that you can really understand more about their behavior and try and understand more about their ecology as well. Thank, thank you for going into that. So then how does one put one on a shark? Then how does one even retrieve all of this data? Um, you know, is it done by a satellite? Does it pop off? Do we have to go grab that accelerometer? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, I have to get the tag back to be able to get all of that accelerometer data. So this data is all being recorded onto the tag. And if you don't get it back, you don't get any data. Um, so it's a real boom or bust um, scenario. That's, that's the downside. You're getting a huge amount of data if you can get the tag back. So you have to be really careful about the, the species that you put the tag out on, how long you want to put it out for, and the environment that you're putting it out on as well. Ideally, in my situation, try and find the tags. And with the bull shark stuff, it's been really cool. Um, we did pretty well in getting most of our tags back. We lost a few, but we found them way, way back in the mangroves that took us a couple of days to, to find those. And we found them offshore. Um, we found them on the beach. And the cool thing with the bull shark stuff is we were combining it with a satellite tag, as you mentioned. So basically, when the tag popped off the shark and floated to the to the surface, then the satellite tag would start pinging, and I would get an email to give me a rough idea of where that tag was, and say like, "Hey, I'm I'm off I'm off my shark. Come find me." And then it's a real treasure hunt. <laughs> I, I literally was about to say it, it is a shark tag treasure hunt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, yes, like I said, and fingers crossed when you can actually find find it. Um, that was going to be my next question. Have you not been able to find one, but you already said it there in your answer. So how long do those batteries last once they pop off that you can get satellite signals for them? Do they, is it only like a few days and after that, then you're kind of out of luck? No, um, it really depends. It depends how long you've put the satellite tag out for previously. So we're, we're using these satellite tags and reusing them and reusing them so long as we can find them so no they'll they'll carry on pinging the way we have them set up they'll carry on pinging until we turn them off or the battery dies so it should be especially with the new tags they should carry on pinging for a long time well that's good at least you, yeah. you do have a buffer zone <laughs> yeah for sure have you ever had one pop off in a spot were you just not expecting? You were like, whoa, Mr. Mrs. Bolt Bull Shark. Why were you there? <laughs> um, so one of the things I mentioned earlier was you have to be a little bit careful about where you put your tags out and the species that you put them out on, because especially like the accelerometers aren't necessarily all that expensive in the grand scheme of things. But if you're coupling with them with things like satellite tags, then the tag package does get expensive. Satellite tags are expensive. One of the one of the things that you consider in the experimental design is where do you think this animal might go and how realistic is it that you'll be able to get the tag back? So those particular bull sharks, we know that they, at that point in their life, don't go all that far afield. We know that they stay in the Indian River Lagoon and in particular areas of the Indian River Lagoon. So there was nothing 
too, too surprising, but we did have one that popped off further upstream than we were expecting, um, which was cool because it meant we got to go check out some new boat ramps where we saw some gators as we were launching the, the boat um, and just got to an, explore a different part of the, the St. Lucie River that we, that we don't usually get to see. Yeah. Well, it's nice to know that you're I don't want to say theories, but things that you have known about these bull sharks in this area are correct, that they are staying <laughs> there. But it, it's also fun to explore a new environment. So maybe for our listeners that maybe don't know much about sharks, hearing them saying bull sharks in a river might freak them out a little bit. So yeah. maybe can you explain a little bit how maybe why we find bull sharks in these kind of river and brackish areas? Yeah, sure. So um, bull sharks are, are one of those species that can tolerate pretty fresh water, um, which isn't true for, for most sharks. These baby and juvenile bull sharks are spending a lot of time in the St. Lucie River and in the Indian River Lagoon during their, as I said, the early stages of their lives, because I mentioned baby and juvenile. So they're there until about eight, nine years old. I didn't yeah. that long. Yeah, they're there for for quite a long time and just the space that they use gets bigger and bigger over time presumably because it affords them good protection from other bigger sharks that could potentially prey on these baby and juvenile bull sharks um, and also there's presumably good food source so that they can they can do all of their growing that they need to do um, and we've been really fortunate that we've had some great studies down in that area to to help try and document this so yeah, I never realized that they stayed in there for almost up to nine years. I thought it was maybe a year or two and they went back out. Wow. Yeah, yeah, they're there for a pretty long time. So we were um, we were only putting, I think the biggest bull shot that we put a tag on for this project in the river was I think about 1.6 meters. Wow. So they're very yeah. small when you put them on. Ooh, so fun. Yeah, yeah. So then speaking of juveniles being in these more protected areas to grow, you've also worked with lemon sharks in yeah. in, in Bimini and looking at how um, they are in like mangrove areas as well. So I would love for you to um, explain to us some of that research as well, because it's also equally exciting as the bull shark work. I mean, Bimini is a very, very special place. There's been a huge amount of work that's been that's been done there for 30 years now, something like that, um, because of Bimini Biological Field Station that was set up by uh, Dr. Gruber. And until recently, they were doing surveys every single summer um, where they were trying to catch all of the juvenile lemon sharks in and around Bimini and giving them their unique little pit tag ID. So that just gives them a alphanumeric tag number so that we could work out which individuals are coming back if they get recaptured and um, a lot of genetics work done as well to, to see that these mums that are born in, in Bimini actually tend to come back and, and pup there themselves. Um, so there's been a huge amount of work done there and we know it to be a good solid um, lemon shark nursery ground um, with, yeah, like I said, a huge amount of data over a, a very long time to to back that up. So it's a pretty unique and special situation there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the short time that I was able to spend there was just incredible and seeing, you know, just all the work there and being able to see the juvenile lemons in that mangrove 
habitat. And you're almost taking it into another world too, because it's just so, I know it's silly to say, but natural because it is. And especially in that area where there's still not a lot of development and being able to just see them do what their sharky thing is. Yeah, it is quite incredible. And being able to view all of that. But I thinking with everything that you've done, you know, you're looking at, you are pretty much customizing tags being put on bull sharks. You're doing fisheries work and things. So being able to go through your many years of schooling, you know, it's not like you can take a class on how you put a tag together, right? So then these types of skills, is it just by practice? How do you like obtain these different types of things to create and customize a tag for your research? Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, you're right. There's no, well, I never came across a class to do that. Um, (laughs) So uh, I think when you start working with these types of tags, especially like they're becoming more common now and it's easier to get the sensor. But yeah, I think a lot of people end up sort of working out their, their own attachment methods and, you know, going out and buying bits and pieces to try and make things float for, for their particular tag and for the species that they're working on. I think it's a lot of trial and error, which is fun and frustrating at the same time, depending on how many tags you lose along the way. Um, I was really fortunate at FAU's Harbour Branch to be able to work alongside an engineer. Um, we had a 3D printer and things like that. So that was really, really helpful. But just picking up bits of learning, bits of information as we go, really. And yeah, like I said, trial and error. Yeah. And it really shows truly the engineering design process that we learn at like second grade when we have to do our science fair project (laughs) that, you know, you're still doing it when you are in actively in your PhD. And I think it's also important to note, you said, you know, you were able to work beside an engineer. And I think it truly shows that you do not have to be the stereotypical biologist to work alongside with sharks too. If you would like to, that is incredible. You, you go and do that if that is your goal, but you know, you can be an engineer working with 3d printing to design tags for sharks. You need someone that helps to, you know, if that is a tech putting it together, essentially creating the tag too. Yeah. And honestly, I think, you know, being able to work alongside people with different skill sets, really benefits everybody it helps you to learn and it it helps produce a better product and really helps to advance the science so yeah I think trying to collaborate and get fresh eyes on new and different situations is really important and should yeah people should take those opportunities and grab them when they can Mm -hmm. so with looking at all the opportunities that you have been able to do um, throughout your career so far and even now with what you're current career is and you've been able to work with an array of species but is there a species yet that you would love to kind of get your hands on and learn more about ah that's a great question for me I interestingly and actually Caroline Wheeler said this in one of her earlier podcasts for me it's become more about developing questions and about the skill set yes more so than it is about the species and I think that's something that really needs to be emphasized for people wanting to go into marine biology Um, it's fine to get excited about a species um, but that won't necessarily carry a a career for me I'm happy working pretty much with any species as long as it's a question that I'm interested in Mm -hmm. but 
I have always, always wanted to see um, oceanic white tips. And I think they're an awesome, awesome species. I would love to see them. I'd love to have the opportunity to work with them if I managed to come up with a question that that deserved it. <laughs> I know you said earlier in the interview that, you know, people might not want to hear about what you're currently doing, but I want to hear about it. <laughs> so I would love to hear then what your current work is um, through UMass Dartmouth. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I love what I'm doing right now, so I'm definitely happy to talk about it. Um, <laughs> so basically, I'm at, at the moment, most fish species are managed um, just as their own unit and they don't really take into account sort of interactions between different species and other things that are going on in the ecosystem in a broader context. So there's sort of this push to something called um, ecosystem-based fisheries management, which has a more holistic view for how to manage the fish stocks. Um, but obviously that that comes with challenges. There's lots of things that you need to try and account for and um, the practicalities of how to implement that. So basically I'm working on a project at the moment, which is trying to, to look at the ability of a particular method to uh, help implement ecosystem-based fisheries management. And it's all based on um, sort of managing portfolios like you might manage a portfolio for a retirement account with stocks and bonds and things like that so quite economics based um, so it's been very different for me but um but awesome I'm excited about it and enjoying it a lot it is quite the transition <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that's an interesting like you just gave um that comparison almost you're looking at it from like this portfolio scope so then yeah. and this more holistic approach so it's not your typical it's like you said very it's not your typical like fisheries management so then what type of sources are you pulling in is it predator prey resources looking at like fishery just like stock data like how like what is in this portfolio yeah so that's a great question i mean there's lots of different um things that you can feed into ecosystem-based fisheries management but for this particular project and this looking at this particular portfolio tool um, we're using landings data and revenue data. So it's publicly available data through NOAA Fisheries um, and just looking at histor historic data, basically, all the way back to the 1960s um, to look at sort of past fishing performance, how things have performed and how it might have looked if we had used this portfolio approach for fisheries management and comparing comparing the two different methods, basically. Interesting. Okay. So then I'm assuming there's a lot of modeling that has to take place. <laughs> that, yeah, that's some modeling. <laughs> Just a little bit. Well, <laughs> that is a skill that bless you for having that because that is a skill that I do not have. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I enjoy it. It's uh, it's not what I thought I was going to be doing when I watched that the shark documentaries when I was eight years old, but I'm really glad that I found it. <laughs> that's great. And I think that's also showing that like an evolution exactly you you know because it's sometimes a question that I do ask on here like eight-year-old you would you expect mm -hmm. what you're doing now and obviously not this probably wasn't even a scope in the fisheries realm when you were eight years old it sounds like maybe it's something new but again maybe I'm wrong on that 
yeah, no, I mean, there were there was information out there. People were talking about it. Um, we're trying to just give it. It sort of goes in peaks and troughs, and we're trying to we're trying to revive this idea right now and take it a little bit further. I love that. Well, I can't wait to hear more as it expands and you get to learn more through this approach. So then in to wrap up the interview today, I would love to hear advice that you would give to your younger self. You know, I feel I feel pretty happy with how everything worked out so far. That's great. Um, yeah, like I said, it's it's fine to love a species, but work out what questions you love. Like, are you interested in behavior? Are you interested in fisheries? Are you interested in how how an animal's body works so physiology um really trying to once you've worked out once finding a particular animal has ignited a passion in you work out like a bigger picture and think about what other animals you might want to work with within the scope of that bigger picture um, especially if you're wanting to to develop a career, it's really helpful to be flexible, um, both with the species that you work with and where you want to work. I wasn't expecting to be living in America when I was eight years old, having also lived in the Bahamas and Australia. So, um, yeah, be be prepared to be flexible, be bold, see where life takes you. I love it. Be, be flexible, be, be bold and see where life takes you. I love it. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Lauren, for coming on today. It was great to hear more about your work uh, with the so many different species that you've been able yeah. to so far. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. We hope to see you on our next episode with Amani Weber Schultz. And please remember to like the Gills Club on all our social media sites to keep up to date with all things Gills Club and the Gills Talk podcast. And please remember to rate, subscribe, and review the podcast on wherever you are listening today. Thank you. And as Lauren said in our interview, be flexible, be bold, and see where life takes you.